You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Right here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hi. Hi, Mike. How are you? Survived my first winter meetings experience. How did you enjoy it? Uh, it was excellent. Uh, it's always fun to see, you know, people from the, around the industry. I like making up fake, fake trades, as you know, and the, uh, that is ground zero for fake trades. So uh, no complaints. That was great. I really enjoyed it. You get to put a lot of faces to names. Uh, a couple of big moves, right? So obviously Adam Eaton going to the Nationals. I think that was the most, let's say, controversial move of the entire winter meetings. I had people, I had people saying this move was worse than the Shelby Miller trade. And uh, I think that's wildly out of line, right? Wouldn't you say that? This, it, it makes a lot more sense, I think. My take on this is I think it's a great trade for the White Sox. I agree. For the Nationals, I think it's okay. Based on where they are, I kind of get it. I, I, I certainly like it better for the, for the White Sox, absolutely. But I think it makes more sense than, for example, the Shelby Miller trade because the Nationals are in much better position to contend. And Adam Eaton is much more likely to be a productive player, I think, than Shelby Miller was. So, I mean, Eaton himself, I, you know, we'll, we'll get to, to Giolito in a moment because he's sort of the, the most controversial aspect of this trade. But Eaton's interesting from a StatCast perspective because, you know, on defensive metric standpoint, he might be the best right fielder in the game or, like, on the short list. He least played that way in 2016. Well I think put, is the best well way to put it. Yeah. It is. It's very well put. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we, we – I think either from a StatCast perspective or a quote-unquote advanced metrics perspective, he was a very, very good uh, elite defensive right fielder. I think he, either he or Mookie Betts had the highest defensive run saved. Uh, even just looking as we're working out defensive metrics from a StatCast perspective, Eaton is always the guy that Darren Willman and Tom Tango would kind of you know call up as the best outfielder because he would just come up as the guy who had made like the, the catches that had the lowest catch rates. He was the one making them. So he's an elite right fielder. Maybe an average-ish center fielder, slightly below average-ish center fielder? I mean, he claims that, you know, was it a shoulder injury held him back in 2015? Shall buy some of that. Yeah, so it's it's hard to, I mean, like, the question is whether or not he's going to be still be above average defender and center or just kind of like a guy. I think is he's still a good hitter. Yes. (laughs) Well, my, my my argument was this doesn't actually help the Nationals defense at all. Because I really like Trey Turner in center field. He's inexperienced, but he's outstanding. He's got outstanding speed. He's an elite runner. He's like an okay shortstop, probably. He won't be as good as Danny Espinosa, most likely. So overall, it helps the lineup. I'm not sure it actually helps the defense. It might actually go the other way. Yeah. But anyway, going back to uh, Chicago, Lucas Giolito, right? So he's you know a top five prospect on everybody's list. Everybody kind of freaked out that you gave up Giolito and uh, Lopez and uh, Dunning, who was their number one pick this year, for Adam Eaton, who is a pretty good player, but probably not a superstar. There's reasons to be down on Lucas Giolito. You know, and I'm not trying to dump on him. He's still a very, very good prospect. I think we agree the White Sox did extremely well for themselves. Uh, but he came up last year uh, through 21 and a third innings. Not really impressive, right? And, uh, you know, we always say sample size. Don't put too much into, you know, the stat line over 21 and a third innings. And I, I think that's absolutely true. But for me, it wasn't the stats. It wasn't like the high ERA. It was the fact that he just wasn't missing bats. Like, the, the, pit, the pitches didn't look that great. Uh, there wasn't a lot of movement in his fastball. And his fastball was really supposed to be one of his main weapons coming up, right? You look at it last year, uh, his fastball, 349, 446, 730 slugging against. Like, the fastball got hit hard because it's hard. There's just not much movement to it. I think it's because of a low spin rate, right? Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, when he first came up, 
I feel like on this show we had a discussion about him, and we were talking about his plate time. That he had this amazing plate time. If you, so if you hear us laughing right now, it's because it's about 10 degrees here in New York, and the uh, old-timey radiator system here in this room is, is popping. I'm a New Yorker, so I barely even notice these things anymore, but you might notice it on the air. <laughs> um, this doesn't affect the Lucas Giolito discussion, though. His plate time, you know, we, we tracked him in the futures. This is before he came up. In the, in the minimum, in the small sample we had in the futures game, he had this crazy extension with plus velocity. So this idea was that, like, he was in a Noah Syndergaard class in terms of how fast the ball got to the plate from his hand. And, and that's really what's, you know, you talk about velocity. What does that really mean? It's how much time does the hitter have to react, right? So you convert that into seconds. That's plate time. That, that's actually kind of a big deal. But then that was, you know, in the futures game, of course, he's coming in trying to throw as hard as he can for... For one inning, he was throwing 98, 99, but he was kind of advertised as that kind of guy, maybe not 98, 99, but sit 96 to 98. In the big leagues, he was sitting 94. Yeah, average is 93.9. I think he maxed out at like 96. There's something to be said for, you know, a guy come trying to extend his workload. Uh, you know, I think that the Nationals kind of had him up and down a couple of times. So I certainly, I buy all that. But the spin rate uh, was, here's his, uh, the RPM on his spin rate, 2061. The major league average for a four-seamer, 2261. Uh, for comparison, Max Scherzer, who has a very good spin rate, it's over 2,500. It's 2,550. So that's a low spin rate. It's a below average spin on the fastball. Now, below average is kind of a term that's got a negative connotation. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Low spin uh, can lead to ground balls, which is great. But he's not a guy who's advertised as a ground ball pitcher. He's a guy who's advertised as being able to blow people away. And we didn't really even see that in the minors too much. I don't think the stat lines never really lived up to the reputation. No, the strikeout rate was always pretty pedestrian for a player with his pedigree. And as you said, the spin rate... Forcing fastball, high spin rate, that's where you get the rising fastball effect, and that's where you get a lot of swings and misses up in the zone, which is, you know, that's Scherzer's, that's like his whole his whole thing. Right. And it also sometimes leads to homers, which is also part of the, the Scherzer. Uh, <laughs> that didn't stop him from uh, winning Zion. No, but so there's definitely some red flags about Giolito that were not there six months ago when he was basically the number one prospect in the game. My, my favorite sort of stat of the winter meetings was that Yuan Mankata, number one prospect in the game currently right now, was traded. And when he was traded, the, it was the first time basically on record since like Baseball America and Pipeline started doing prospect rankings, going back to basically 1989 for Baseball America, that the number one prospect was ever traded. The next day, Lucas Giolito, who had been the number one prospect earlier this year, got traded. Was, got traded. Who's the number one prospect now? Do you know off the top of your head? Should that guy be looking over his shoulder? Um, J.P. Crawford, I, is it? I think he's in the top two. No, it's still Mankata. He just is a oh, prospect well, for okay, different fine, but then, yeah, fine, <laughs> fine, 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 fine. Uh, just going back to spin rate real quick, I, I like to use it. You know, People ask me about, you know, does a high spin rate guarantee you're going to be a, a good pitcher? And, and no, it, it doesn't. It's, it's a tool. It's like having high velocity. It's very, very good, but it doesn't guarantee you're going to be a good pitcher. I started thinking about it more as, as almost like a, a scouting tool, like a way to put numbers to scouting, but how you should use your pitches. And uh, so I like it when our numbers kind of line up with what the eyes of the scouts are seeing. So this is from uh, Eric Longenhagen, who's a very good scout from Fangraphs. Writing on Giolito, he says, his fastball has grounder-inducing plane, and his tendency to work up in the zone with a fastball that features very little spin has been detrimental. That couldn't align more perfectly with the numbers that we see in the data here. And, and I think if there's any more of a clear indication that Giolito's stock has fallen within the industry, it's the fact that the day or two before he was traded, the White Sox turned down a package headlined by him for Chris Sale and instead traded Chris Sale to the Red Sox. And then two days later, 
used Adam Eaton to get Giolito. Right. And I still think, like we said, the White Sox did well, but Giolito maybe more of a mid-rotation starter, maybe a very good reliever. You get his velocity back up. I just, I, it's possible he could be an ace, obviously. He hasn't, sh- he hasn't been in the big leagues that long. But there are certainly real reasons why the industry was a little down on him, and I, I think that's fair. Yes. So, anyway, good move by the White Sox. Understandable move by the Nationals is the way I would put it. Uh, we still have a lot of hot stove left, right? There's a lot of free agents out there. I, I think I said during the meetings that when Ian Desmond signed for uh, $70 million, which is a, a really surprising contract, that it was going to put the freeze on things, I think. Because other free agents whose prices were maybe coming down will see that and say, I'm not signing for less than that. I think I'm a better player than he is. And we really haven't really seen anybody big sign since then. I mean, uh, we saw Dexter Fowler, I guess, but he's not, you know. And we saw Turner and Jansen stay where they are. Stay where they are. And I mean, as you pointed out to me the other day, like the fact that Desmond got more guaranteed total dollars than he, Justin Turner is, yeah, there, there's kind of crazy. No world where Dean Desmond is a, a more valuable player than Justin Turner. Part of it's because there wasn't a lot of market for third baseman this year. Turner probably wanted to stay in LA, so fine. But yeah, there's there's a lot of questions about that. But it, it's interesting. We look at some of the free agents who are still out there. Um, you know, from a StatCast perspective, for example, Pedro Alvarez had the fifth highest exit velocity this year, uh, minimum 100 balls in play. His average exit velocity, 94.5 miles per hour. Now, obviously, Pedro Alvarez has his flaws. He strikes out a lot. Uh, he's not a defender really at all, and uh, he's a platoon guy, right? But it's still, there's something interesting about him, and kind of in today's game, if you can find that one really useful thing about a player, that might be good enough to find a home for some of these I guys. mean, for me, Alvarez is a guy who's going to be on the, like, the strong side of a platoon who can crush righties, I think he's a, a, a useful player. I mean, like, if someone, you know, with a hole at first base, maybe the Rangers, went and did a Chris Carter, Pedro Alvarez platoon, like, that'll play. What do you think the, what do you think the combined stat line for those two guys would be? 500 strikeouts, right? 80 homers. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if I'm the Rockies, I probably would have done that before I signed Ian Desmond to play first base. <laughs> I would have done minutes. a lot of things before I did. But, that. I mean, like, it's... Alvarez is a, is, a, is a useful player. He had a nice year last year for the Orioles, but, you know, Showalter had options. He had some right-handed you know, He had Trumbo. He had some other right-handed hitters, so he was able to basically never let Alvarez face lefties. So, like, you know, he only had, like, 300 plate appearances, but he, he had a nice stat line. Yeah, well, and it's interesting is what what is still out there is really these kind of first baseman DH sluggery types, right? Like Alvarez, you know, uh, Encarnacion, obviously, we'll get to in a second. Mark Trumbo had the third most barrels in baseball. So barrels is our stat cast metric combining exit velocity and launch angle. So the kind of batted balls that lead to a batting average of 500 uh, and a slugging percentage of 1,500. It's like the best thing a hitter can do. Trumbo did that the third most times. Uh, Chris Carter, my favorite player, apparently all of a sudden, did it the eighth most times. Like there are, and Encarnacion, I think, was on that list too. There are sluggery first base types out there if you want to find them. And that's sort of the problem is that all these, all the same teams looking at these guys are sort of, you know, kind of waiting out the market a little bit because there's, there's also Mike Napoli who's still out there who had a nice year, and then there's obviously Encarnacion who's sort of like the. The, the top of the market, there's also Jose Bautista. I mean, that's, the, that's like the one thing this market has is those kinds of guys. And it's kind of hard to get a deal done when, like, I think most front offices are shrewd enough now to basically be like, you know what, like, I'm okay if Chris Carter ends up falling in my lap on a one-year deal as opposed to going and feeling like I have to spend, uh, you know, five years and – 80 to 100 million on Encarnacion and then go down from there. Well, let's compare Trumbo and, and Encarnacion, right? I mean, you, to me, I don't think they're very, they're similar players. I think one is a very clearly superior player, and that's Encarnacion uh, kind of by a lot. But you found some interesting stuff about comparing their exit velocity. Yeah, because, you know, one thing we've talked a lot about is that, you know, how average exit velocity isn't always a great 
I'd say, I'd say average for anything, really, right? And not just exit velocity, just as like a math term, but go on. But like, it's not, it's, it's, it's obviously an easy way to sort of evaluate players via StatCast, but it's not the, it's not that useful because, I mean, when you think about it, like pretty much anything below 90 miles per hour that you, off the bat is an out. So basically like hitting at 81 and hitting at 89 is basically the same. Yeah, Tom, it's in, in practical terms. Tom Tango actually did some research on this and he, he made a, kind of a bigger leap than that. He's like, I think 88 was his inflection point. And he said, it doesn't really matter if you hit at 70 or 40 or 50. It's probably going to be an out, yeah, uh, you know, I unless mean, it's a bloop or whatever. There's the donut hole, you know. But, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really tell you much about the hitter, but it will drag down your average. So really what we want is players who hit the ball when they hit it well, hit it hit it well, essentially. So, like, for example, Trumbo, his average exit velocity is 93.9 miles per hour in, in 2016, and Carnacion was 91.5. So there's a big gap there. But when you dig deeper into batted ball types, the gap is almost entirely on ground balls. Trumbo's ground ball was, average ground ball was 92.8 miles an hour, and Carnacion's was 86.7 miles per hour. And that's, like, accounts for... That's a, that's a huge gap. That's all the difference. And, like, for players like that, sluggers, like, yeah, you're more likely to get a few more singles, but, like, it's really not moving the needle in, like, your overall stat line. So if, if you're one of these guys and you put the ball on the ground, you're saying it almost doesn't matter how hard you hit it. Basically. That's a little extreme, I guess. But, so yeah, you're right. They're not, they're not there to get singles. But then when they you look at elevate. when you, you know, and yes, Trumbull had more barrels than Encarnacion by a significant amount, 67 to 52, but Encarnacion walks a lot more. Um, he only had five fewer homers. And... Batted balls above 100 miles per hour with a launch angle of 10 degrees and above. So basically, like, low-line drives and above at 100 miles per hour or more. Tromo had 84, and Carnacion had 84. Like, so in that regard, when they put the ball in play, they were basically identical. And that's sort of the low end of, like, okay, this is, like, a really well-struck ball. So it's interesting because I, I look at Trumbo and I, I, I kind of think of him as a one-tool player, right? Power is elite. Nobody argues that. As you said, he doesn't walk much. Uh, he's not a good outfielder. He's probably an okay first baseman defensively. Uh, none of these guys we're talking about are, are really any base runners, so you know, kind of ignore that. Uh, but Encarnacion, you know, he's got plate discipline. You know, he's got a little bit more than that, and so that's why when you look at the steamer projections for next year, uh, the slugging percentage, pretty close to being the same. Batting average, not that you should care, is basically exactly the same. But on base percentage, Encarnacion has nearly a 40-point lead in that, and that's a big deal. I mean, simply not making outs and getting on base, it matters. So that's where he is the big edge. Uh, but, you know, as you say, like, it's interesting to see where average exit velocity kind of takes you in directions maybe you're not wanting to go. The way that I still think average exit velocity will, can still very much be a useful tool is in kind of evaluating injuries and slumps. Because we've seen real trends of, like, if you're not healthy, you can't hit the ball hard at all. Ground balls, fly balls, whatever. But we've seen in the past, you know, McCutcheon a couple years ago, even this past year, frankly, a good example of a guy who, like, in a big slump, got, like, a week off, came back, and suddenly, like, exit velocity just went up. I feel like that's still a good tool. Like, average exit velocity will still be useful in, like, rough terms of, you know, evaluating guys if they look like they're right or not. I don't know what you think about that. No, I think we kind of showed that a couple times. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, you can – you can – it's really hard to see if guys are healthy or not. And this isn't going to be the obvious, yes, you're healthy or not. But if a guy is trying to play through pain, uh, this is a pretty good way, maybe even to show him and convince him, hey, maybe you're best served taking a week or two off. Uh, let's, let's go to pitchers for a second. And then we're going to get something interesting, I think, about, uh, about catchers and stolen bases. Um, it, there's a couple of pitchers that we should talk about real quick, just in terms of stack cast. Obviously, Rich Hill got signed uh, for a lot of money, incredibly high curveball spin rate. Charlie Morton got signed for a lot of money for him, uh, you know, because he barely pitched it all last year. Very high curveball spin rate. 
Andrew Bailey got signed. He wasn't very good last year, but he has the highest fastball spin rate in baseball. He signed with the Angels. Uh, his spin rate on his fastball was 26.74. Uh, the average again is 22.64. That's a pretty big deal. It's actually a little better when he went to the Angels, started throwing strikes. That's why he wasn't very good with the Phillies. Doesn't matter how high you spin the ball if you can't get across the plate. Uh, so it's interesting to see some of these guys who really stand out in ways getting jobs, which I like. And Bailey's the kind of guy, you know, like we've talked a little bit in the office about the Angels. They're sort of, it's hard to call a team that has the best player in baseball a sleeper team. But they're kind of a sleeper team in the sense that, like, if you look at their lineup and, like, you know, and then look at their rotation, which is filled with some guys with talent, and their pitching staff in general, because I put Bailey in this group, guys with talent with huge injury question marks, like, you can see a team that might compete for a wild card. They're also, like, they could be win 65. They might be the highest beta team in baseball. Like, they could, I could see them anywhere between 65 and 90 wins, with 90 wins being unlikely, but, like, they have Trout, they have a pretty good lineup across the board. You know, the, I should say deep lineup. They don't really have any, like, real holes in the lineup. Uh, well, sort of. I, I completely understand what you're saying, and I will still take the hard under. Because I, listen, you're right, Trout obviously is amazing. I, there's, there's no team in baseball. That, all right, let me give you a good example. All right? The Dodgers lost Clayton Kershaw for two and a half months last year. No question he's the best pitcher in baseball. And, yeah, they, they suffered for it, but they still won the division. If the Angels lost Trout for two and a half months, where would they be? A hundred games out of first this place. This is why I said high, no high, var- depth. high variance. <laughs> they have no depth, and their pitching staff is like relying on guys coming back from serious yeah. injuries. Uh, right. So Schumacher got you know hit in the head, and obviously he's, he sounds like he's doing great, which is wonderful. Uh, Ed, uh, no, Edwards Richards, you know, trying to be one of the very very few guys who works through a torn UCL. It almost never works, but sometimes Tanaka, you know, guys like that make it work. And uh, Tyler Skaggs, who had a serious arm injury, Tommy John surgery, came back and. I don't even know what behind it. Like, you know, Weaver's gone, Wilson's gone. You have to really be relying on all three of those guys giving you, like, 180 good innings. And I will take the serious under on that. Wow. Kind of a downer for Mike for all you Angels fans out there. <laughs> well, I hope we hear from all the Angels fans. <laughs> I still say that Mike Trout is awesome. And I will, I'll give you this. Uh, their defense, I think, is going to be very, very good. The infield, the middle infield of uh, Espinosa and Simmons, I mean, that's stellar. I don't want to get there's another Southern California picture I want to talk about so I want to get to that but before we leave that point I think that's part of why I think they could be sneaky good is because I think that the defense is positioned to make you know some of their pitchers look a lot better whoever it is that they end up putting at the back end of the rotation is that they may have you know one of the three or four best defenses in the league and suddenly like their run profession could improve and have nothing to do with the pitchers on the map. I will say the last thing on the Angels, uh, they will. I could argue they have the best up-the-middle defense in baseball. Martin Maldonado, who they just got from Milwaukee, a very good defensive catcher. You know, Simmons and Espinosa in the middle infield. Trout in center field. That's hard to top. That's really, really good. Uh, it might be, you know, the best thing they have to hang their hat on other than Trout, but you can go with it. Let's go to the uh, Matt Meyer-sponsored Tyson Ross Power. You've been dying all day to talk to me about Tyson Ross. Tyson I, Ross, I can't wait. In this, in this, in this pitching market where... There's, you know, there's no elite starting pitching. The fact that Tyson Ross is not in high, and maybe he'll end up you know, getting a big deal, I have no idea. But like, to me, he should be in high demand because he has by far the most upside of any pitcher left on the starting pitching market. He's not that old. Let's, let's explain how Tyson Ross got to this point, right? Yes. So over, over 2014 and 15 uh, for San Diego, very, very good pitcher. Almost 400 innings, 303 ERA, uh, 311 uh, fielding independent pitching. Uh, extremely, extremely uh, talented there. And then last year, he made one start, missed the entire rest of the season, ended up uh, having thoracic outlet syndrome, which is uh, the procedure where they remove a rib, and it's actually kind of serious. Yeah, and, it is know. kind of serious. I mean, the thing about it was that, like, it was a weird year in that his, his 
that wasn't diagnosed until later in the year. So he ended up having surgery until September, October. He had, he'd been rehabbing during the season. Then he did like a minor league rehab start and he sprained his ankle that set him back. So like they thought, then they were like, Oh, it's the ankle. That's the issue. And then, so he's definitely a big unknown. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't think he's, he's a slam dunk, but if you're looking for pitching upside, he's by far as good as it gets. And the fact of the matter is the comp I would use and Andrew, and Andrew Simon wrote about this and they made a great point. Matt Harvey just had the same procedure that Ross did. If Matt Harvey was a free agent right now, there'd be a bidding war. You know, Ross is, I think, two years older than him. It's not like there's a huge gap in age here. He's 29 or he's going to be 30 in, uh, next year. Um, yeah, no, Harvey's better, but over those last two years, the 2014 and 2015, it was closer than you'd think. Tyson Ross was really good. Nobody really paid attention because the Padres weren't contenders. And, and the, the other pitchers that he was in the class of were, in terms of Fangraph's war, were were... He was at 7.6 war for those two years, or 7.7. He was right below, he was 21st in baseball in that time, right below Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg. Two, two other pitchers who had big injury histories, who have big injury histories. Like, those are other guys, if they were free agents, like, Strasburg just signed for, you know, whatever $200 million order it was. You know, and I'm not saying he's as good as those guys, but, like, I feel like he's kind of, this is where it seems like, yes, you know, play, pitching for a team that's been pretty, you know, irrelevant, in a market that's pretty small, like he's gotten completely overlooked, and I'll admit I don't know everything about his medicals, and maybe there's like these huge red flags, but I'm just surprised. And there was a rumor the Cubs were looking at him for a one-year deal at 10 million, which to me is like a steal for a guy like Tyson Ross. Yeah, and working in his favor is that the free agent pitching market is, uh, to put it nightly, a flaming trash heap. I mean, yeah. Rich Hill was the best, and he signed. Who's who's best left? Jason Hamill, probably. Yeah, and there's not and a lot Ivan, out there. Ivan Nova. Ivan Nova. You know, I think I'm wondering, and this uh, this applies less to him, but I think it applies more to maybe some of the sluggers we talked about before. But I do wonder if the framework of this contract that Cespedes signed last year, we see a couple of those where it's like a three-year deal with big guaranteed dollars, but with a one-year opt-out. So the player can basically say, oh, if I have a great year, I can leave, opt out into the market next year, which is going to be a pretty shallow market relative to this year. I can't even know who the top free agent is next year. But I'm yeah, next sure. year is pretty lousy, and then the following year is going to be outstanding. Yeah, so I could see, I mean, definitely I could see that on someone like, maybe not Encarnacion because he's on Bautista because they're older, but that's the kind of thing I could definitely see happen with someone like with someone like Trumbull. He wouldn't get Cespedes as money, but I could see that, that sort of framework. Yeah, those guys are going to have to do something soon. Let's talk about catchers. Let's finish off by, by talking about catchers. Uh, and, and we kind of talked about this, I think, at various points during the season. Like, we hadn't really done a research on it, but I would just kind of bring up, uh, you know, oh, there's a, a stolen base last night, and I looked it up, and it was uh, 78 miles an hour, the throw from the catcher. And it really seemed like it was constantly always in that band, right, between 76 and, and 81, regardless of whether it was successful or not. So uh, I eventually went and wrote about this for the, uh, the Hardball Times Annual, which is out now, which is uh, through our partners at Fangraphs, which is very good. And uh, I thought I found something interesting, and it kind of goes back to what you were just talking about with exit velocity, which is that the average of anything is, is a little misleading, right? So uh, we just looked at stolen bases at second base, so just a second. The average catcher arm strength on stolen bases, 78.8 miles an hour. Average catcher arm strength on caught stealings, 80.1 miles an hour. That's not really that much difference. We actually I converted it to, uh, to throw time. Like, what is the time from the catcher's hand to second base? For stolen bases, 1.2 seconds. That's how long it took. 1.26 seconds. 1.26 seconds, sorry. And uh, for caught stealings, 1.24 seconds. There's, like, no difference there, right? So if you look at the average, you say, oh, okay, catcher arm strength, it doesn't matter at all. You know, and obviously we know there's so much other stuff that goes into it. You know, the lead distance, the how fast is the pitcher, you know, the release the ball to the plate. 
uh, and you know how accurate was the throw. And now, after watching Javi Baez all October, maybe it's also how great is the infielder putting on the tag because that seems to be a skill all of a sudden. That's certainly part of the equation. I mean, the most fascinating comparison to me is Russell Martin to Salvador Perez. I think this illustrates it extremely well. Yeah, so I was going to say, it's, it seems like it doesn't matter, and here's a good example why, as, as Matt is pointing out. So Russell Martin and Salvi Perez had a very, very similar average arm strength. Uh, so Russell Martin, 80.9 miles an hour average on his throws a second. Sal Perez, 81.2 miles an hour, just about exactly the same. Here's the uh, success rate. Russell Martin threw at 15% of his runners. Salvador Perez threw at 48% of his runners. <laughs> Right, and so you're thinking to yourself, okay, this really can't have any difference whatsoever. It doesn't matter how hard you throw it; it's like the ninth most important thing. And, you know, maybe that's true. We haven't gone through all the other things yet, but it turns out I don't think that's actually true. There's more of a relationship than it seems. Like it's not a total no relationship. Uh, what it really seems like is that you kind of get to this point where around 82 miles an hour is very similar with with batted ball exit velocity. If you're throwing it below 82 miles an hour, or so it doesn't matter how much far, further below you are than that, right? Because like the way this came out is if you threw the ball 82 miles an hour and up, uh, your caught stealing percentage was a little over 45%, which is outstanding. Yep. You throw it uh, you know, 76 to 81, 31%, uh, below 75, it's 18%. So obviously there is a relationship there. Right, so it's still uncertain, you know, whether that's as strong as as uh, you know lead distance or throwing accuracy, which I, I kind of think is going to be the thing that actually makes the most difference of anything, uh, you know. But it, it is really interesting to see that the the relationship is not maybe as strong as we thought it was, where catchers for years are just judged on caught stealing percentage. That's how you're a good catcher. And you were definitely seeing that much more of it, as you said, exchange time, which is part of it, which isn't part of the throw, and it's also the pitcher, right? You know, in the playoffs, particularly, we saw. With you know, pitchers like John Lester, where it was easy to take a big lead on, even though people didn't steal him all that much. Julio Urias, you can't take a big lead on because his lead is so good. So, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of variables there, and that's the biggest one. The other thing about pitchers, and this is going to be really hard to quantify with StatCast, is I asked Tony DeComo, Anthony DeComo, about Noah Syndergaard, who teams ran wild on, because his time to the plate, his, you know, his time to get rid of the ball is run-of-the-mill. It's not particularly slow. So you, why were teams able to run him in a will? And his point, what he the, the he'd asked some people around the Mets and on the opposition what they thought the reason was, and basically it was like, Syndergaard never changes his tempo, so there's no deception at all. Everyone knows every time. Okay, he's going to take the he doesn't slide step, he doesn't try and hesitate or anything. So it's like he's just entirely predictable. And like from a number standpoint, you can't. It's really hard to quantify that. That's like a whole other variable that we can't really you know take into account. In, in stack at least not as far as I know. Maybe Tom can't. Tom Great, can't you, you just added like ten more work or ten more years of work to our workload. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I thought that I thought that was interesting because going into it, I really thought it was going to be you know it, it doesn't matter so much, but it does it does matter a little, and I'm interested to see what happens when we kind of put in all the other inputs, right? And then maybe we'll say, well, actually, it matters, but seven other things matter more, or it matters for twelve percent of the outcome. It'll be cool when we can have that that pie that right. shows exactly. What you know the the important weights the importance of each element of the uh, the stolen base. So if you want to see that, that is up on uh, on MLB.com. dot com, and uh, that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week for one more show before the end of the year. Uh, I'm Mike Petriello, Matt Myers. This is the MLB.com dot com Stackcast podcast. Mm-hmm.